All right, good morning. How are we doing? <laughs> it's good to see you. If we have not met, my name is Brian Kiley, one of the pastors here at Bridgeway. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, that's where we are going to be this morning. We're actually not going to get to the text for, for a little bit, but uh, you can go ahead and go there if you'd like on page 393 on the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. We're continuing into part 7 of the Purpose Reclamation Project, our series teaching through the book of Ezra. And, and as we get rolling this morning, I have a, I have a question for you, and, and it's this. Have you ever maybe heard about something or read about something or seen something on the news or, or, or anything like that where you've seen somebody go through something and you've just thought to yourself, I cannot imagine the emotion they must be feeling, whether it's an accomplishment or a hardship or a trial or something like that, where you just look at, at what's going on and you've just thought, I just, my own life experience, I cannot imagine the emotion they must be feeling in this moment. I'll, I'll give you an example. So, so earlier this year, I listened to an audiobook about uh, an, Arct an Antarctic explore explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton. And, and here's what, what Shackleton did. is In 1914, he decided to launch an expedition uh, taking a ship all the way down to Antarctica. And the goal of the expedition was uh, his crew of 28 men was going to sail to Antarctica. And then he and five of the men were going to get off of the boat and then traverse the entire continent, make a transcontinental journey 1,800 miles, and be picked up on the other side. He was going to be the first, they were going to be the first people to do this. In other words, they were completely insane. But what happened was as the boat, the boat, the ship was called the Endurance, as it was getting down into Antarctica, it got stuck in the ice. In Antarctica. Who could have possibly seen that coming? It got stuck in January 1915, and it remained stuck until October of 1915. And this wasn't in the book, but I'm pretty sure nobody brought their iPads, okay? There was nothing to do except hunt seals and not die. Like, that was it. But then in October, they had to get off of the boat because the ice started to crush it. So then they had to move all of their supplies, their lifeboats and everything, onto these big Antarctic ice flows until November 21st, 1915, when the boat sank. Now, I don't know how your day is going so far. But at least you're not sitting on an Antarctic ice flow in 1915 watching your boat sink. Now, long story short, they tried to move around the continent. They tried to figure out ways out, but they were completely locked in by ice until April of the following year when, when the ice flow they were on broke apart and they were able to load into their uh, lifeboats and try to sail to the nearest island, which was only a mere 300 miles away. And they only had to hit it with pinpoint navigational accuracy to avoid just sort of sailing off into oblivion. But miraculously, they made it. It took them five days, but they made it. And on this island, they found absolutely nothing of any use to them. There were no people, it wasn't near any trade routes, nothing. This was not a place they were going to be able to survive. So what Shackleton eventually decided was that he and five of his men were going to load into another one of their lifeboats, they were going to sail 726 miles through the roughest sea in the world to an island where they knew they could find help. And after 15 days of constantly being at risk of capsizing, dealing with literally hurricane force winds, they miraculously made it. And there's even more to the story, but bottom line is they eventually made it to a whaling station 
on an island called South Georgia, and every single one of the 28 men survived. It is a mind-blowing story. And as I was listening to it, first of all, I'm listening to this story, and I'm thinking, okay, there are about 48 times in this story where I would have died. Like, boat gets stuck, dead, you know. You gotta hunt your own food, dead. (laughs) Kind of working your way across Antarctica, dead. Okay, sailing in this, like, I'm just, I am dead so many times in this story, right? And then the really funny thing is, I was listening to this book during winter time, and, you know, so the weather was really bad at the time, and I would catch myself thinking things, like I'd arrive at work after listening to the book, and I'd think, oh, it's raining, I'm gonna get wet. Like, man, I'm a wimp. (laughs) But I can't imagine the emotion that each one of those men who at different times realized, oh my gosh, I'm going to live. Like when they realized that they were going to be rescued, I cannot imagine to go through the things they went through and to realize, wow, like this isn't going to be the end. I'm going to live. Or or here's another example, a more recent kind of totally different example. Maybe you heard about this. This was in the news. There was a Kenyan guy by the name of Elihud Kipchoge who was sponsored and kind of trained up by Nike to try to break the two-hour barrier for running a marathon, 26.2 miles in under two hours. And he ended up finishing in two hours and 25 seconds. He didn't quite make it, but he ran an entire 26.2 miles at a speed that the average moderately fit American male could keep up for about a minute. Like, that is unbelievable. I can't imagine what it's like to run that fast. What are the emotions when you just realize, man, I've run 26 miles in two hours. Heck, there are places in this state where to be able to drive 26 miles in two hours is an accomplishment, right? Or you think maybe about more relatable, more familiar, but still incredibly impressive examples. I think about maybe someone, I mean, I've done a lot of school in my life. I've never done a PhD. I think about someone who's, who's accomplished, who's earned a PhD. Just what an amazing accomplishment. What, I can't imagine that feeling. Or you hear about couples, maybe some of you in this room, who've been married for like 50 and 60 years. I, I can't imagine that. Or you see these things on the internet. I love seeing these videos of like surprise reunions of people coming together after a long deployment or something like that. I, I can't imagine the emotion. Of those moments. And what we have in front of us in, in our text for today is that sort of a moment for Israel. It's a moment that is so profound, so significant, that I'll just be honest with you, I think we as 21st century Western American Christians, I just don't think we can relate to the emotion of the moment. Because what we're going to see in our story today is the rebuilding and rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's just impossible for us to fully appreciate what a big deal this was for the people of Israel. Just to recap where we've been in the series so far, in case you haven't been here or or just, just need a summary, this is what this group of people had been through in the 70 years prior to what we're going to look at today. In 586 BC, the Babylonians had come into to Jerusalem and they had conquered, conquered Israel. They destroyed their temple and pulled them away into captivity. And while they were in captivity, days turned into weeks, which turned into months, which turned into years, which ultimately turned into decades. And it was 48 years later that a king named Cyrus the Great came to power. And Cyrus the Great said that all of the different groups that, had, that were exiles in Babylon, including the Jews, could return back to their homeland. And let's just be clear about this. 48 years later, this is a very different group than the original group 
that had been brought into exile. Most of the original exiles were now dead. Most of the current exiles had heard, all they had heard, as, their, as children and grandchildren of the originals, all they had heard was God gave us a land. And God gave us a temple. And God has promised us that after 70 years here, we're going to go back there. But all of these exiles knew was captivity. All they knew was being away from the place that they'd been told God had given them. So thanks to, thanks to Cyrus, they get to return. So they begin the arduous 900-mile journey back from captivity to Jerusalem, which any of you who have ever tried to get a large group to move anywhere know that that is not exactly an easy task. They get back and they start to build the temple. But to make a long story short, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for the temple. There's, there's, there's people who had remained in the land who hadn't been exiled, who weren't that excited about it. It became apparent that the temple they were going to be able to build was not going to be as ornate and extravagant as the one that had been destroyed. So people just weren't that excited about it. So the project was delayed for 16 years, which, think about it. What were you doing 16 years ago? That's a long time. But then finally... Thanks to the work of some Old Testament prophets that Matt talked about last week, the, t- the project is resumed and building moves forward full speed ahead in 520 BC until it is finally completed in 516 BC, a full 70 years after the temple was originally destroyed. So these men and women who their entire lives, again, had been told, God gave us a land and God gave us a temple and someday we're going to return. These people who their entire lives had been told about the prophecy of Jeremiah 29, where God said, in 70 years, I'm going to return you to your land. These people who, I don't know about you, if I'm them, I'm starting to doubt that at many different times in my life. All they had been told was, we have a land, we're going to go back. We have a temple, we're going to go back. And then God did it. God made it happen. And there they were in the temple, worshiping together. God did what he had promised he would do. I can't imagine the emotion of that moment. And we're going to get to the passage here in a few minutes. But, but I'll be honest with you. It's, it is a short passage. And there's not really that much to explain. What happens is they open the temple and they have a big party to dedicate the temple to the Lord. And then three weeks later, they celebrate the Passover and they have a big party celebrating God and all that he had done. Then the next day is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day really big party where they just celebrate everything that God has done. It's, about cel- it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's all about celebration, joy, thankfulness. That's what the passage is about and that's what we see. So what I want to do is we're not going to spend as much time breaking down the text as we normally would in a typical Bridgeway sermon. So if you're new, this is a little bit atypical. But what I want to do is use this text and use this teaching as a reminder to all of us that from the beginning and continuing into today, God's desire for his people is that they would be a celebrating people. We are invited to be a celebrating people. We're invited to be a joyful people. We're invited to be people who live with thanksgiving. And I want to suggest to you that Christ followers of all people in the world have great reason to be thankful. This passage represents a time of great celebration for Israel. And the historical moment is unique. It's the rebuilding of the temple. But God's invitation to celebration is not unique 
at all. Celebration, joy, thankfulness. These things are at the heart of God's desire for his people. And I want to suggest to you they're at the heart of God's desire for you. I remember a couple of years ago, my wife and I were at a concert seeing one of our favorite bands. You may have heard of them. They're called Ren Collective. They're this sort of Irish folk worship band, and they're, they're just lots of fun. And we're, we're loving this concert. There's all sorts of different instruments, and the, the music is fantastic. And I just I love their, just their lyrics are profound and worshipful, and, and we're just having a great time. And it's very sort of upbeat and energetic and, and fun. And I remember, I'll never forget this, at one point during... During the concert, one of the members of the band starts talking about kind of the band's guiding philosophies. You can just tell these are people that like to have a good time, that, that like to enjoy themselves. And remember, they were, they were Irish. So he gets up and he says, he, he, he's, he's telling the, the audience about kind of one of their core philosophies. And he says, we believe that seriousness is not a fruit of the spirit. But joy is. Now, my lame Irish accent aside, can I get an amen to that? Seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit, but joy is. I love that. It reminds me of a great quote from C.S. Lewis who says, Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. If you are a Christ follower, you have been invited into a life of celebration, joy, and thankfulness. And I want to be clear, I'm not necessarily talking about expressiveness when I talk about thankfulness, right? Like, we can irritate people around us by being a little bit over-thankful, if, if you know what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying we need to be the sort of people who, like, can't ever get anything done because we're too busy freaking out about, oh my gosh, this chair is so comfortable. The pen, it writes in black ink. How amazing. Praise the Lord. Like, I'm not saying... <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm not talking about expressiveness. Some of us are more expressive people, and that's fantastic. Others of us were a little more introverted, whatever. But here, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about expressiveness. I'm talking about the condition of your heart. I'm talking about having a heart that just goes through life with a profound sense of thankfulness. With a profound sense of thankfulness. And, and I believe there are a number of reasons why God calls us to be thankful people. But there's one in particular I want to key in on. Do, do I believe God calls us to be thankful people for his glory? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Do I believe that God calls us to be thankful people so that we might, uh, we might rightly and properly thank him for the good things he's done in our lives? Yeah, I do. But I also believe God calls us to be thankful people for our own benefit. I think he calls us to be thankful for our own benefit. In fact, I believe a posture of thankfulness is its own reward. Think about that. A posture of thankfulness is its own reward. And, and we know this is true because you'll be really hard-pressed to find a miserable, thankful person. Right? Like, ah, air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink, people who love me, air conditioning. I just can't stand all of these wonderful blessings in my life. I'm just so thankful I don't know what to do with myself. I can't stand I don't know how much longer this can go on. Nobody says that, right? Nobody says that. There is profound and lasting joy that comes from being thankful. There's profound and lasting joy that comes from recognizing you and I are entitled to nothing. And therefore, everything is a gift. 
See, we talk periodically about Bridgeway. We talk periodically at Bridgeway about this concept of wholeness. If you've been around for a while, you know that our mission statement is equipping one another to bring the wholeness of Jesus to a broken world. On, on your bulletin, you see our tagline: "To a whole new life." To a whole new life. We believe that wholeness is possible. We believe that, that God loves us so much that He sent Jesus into the world to begin to make our broken world whole. And that he, and he does the same thing in our hearts, that he comes into our hearts and begins to make our broken hearts whole. And I want to suggest to you today, this is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, it's this, that thankfulness is necessary for wholeness. If you and I are going to experience the wholeness of Jesus in our lives, you and I must develop the ability to be thankful people. Whatever your circumstances, thankfulness is necessary for wholeness. Thankfulness, particularly thankfulness to God, is in many regards the key that unlocks a whole life. Because listen, wholeness is not about circumstances. I'm not saying favorable circumstances don't help. But wholeness is not about circumstances. Wholeness is a matter of the heart. Thankfulness is a matter of of the heart. God is the giver of all good gifts. And it's in reflecting our thanks back to him that we experience wholeness and joy. God is the giver of all good gifts. And it is in reflecting our thanks back to him that we experience wholeness and joy. Thankfulness is its own reward. It's its own reward because a thankful life is a joyful life. A thankful life is a whole life. Now there's two different kind of ways you can look at thankfulness that I want to talk about. One of them is just a general posture of, of thankfulness. Just generally, just being thankful kind of for life and for what it is. I think about verses like Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20 or 1 Thessalonians 5 18 that say something to the effect of give thanks in all things. That there's something to be said for us being people that have a posture of thankfulness. And as you read the New Testament, there's constant reference to being thankful and giving thanks to God. There's reference to joy and, and all of these other things. And, and I think it's fair to ask the question, why is it that the writers of the New Testament were able to key in on joy and thankfulness? Why is it that they themselves were able to be so thankful? And it's important that we recognize why it is. They were able to do this because of the lens through which they viewed the world. They looked at the world through the lens of Christ's resurrection and his promised return. They looked at the world realizing, you know what, Christ has died and Christ is risen and he is coming again. Our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death have been conquered. Any hardship we're going to experience in this life is temporary because Jesus has won the victory for us. So because of that, they could be thankful. Because of that, they could be joyful. Because of that, the Apostle Paul could write radical words like rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And he did not write that from a club med resort. He wrote it from prison. How could he do that? Because of the lens through which he was viewing the world. Can you and I, what if we learn to view the world through that same lens? Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. So we can have hope. We can have joy. We can have thankfulness even in the hardships. It's a posture of thankfulness that God invites us into. But I'll say this. I think something is lost. I think something is lost if 
we're not specifically thankful as well. If we're not specifically thankful as well. Something is lost if we just sort of say, well, I'm thankful for everything. Well, what exactly are you thankful for? Everything. I think we miss something if we do that because the real power of thankfulness works itself out in the specific moments of life. And it's by learning to be specifically thankful, particularly for things we might otherwise take for granted, by learning to be specifically thankful that we ward off one of the greatest, if not the greatest, joy killer in the world, and that is entitlement. Right? If you're experiencing too much joy in your life, and you want to kind of put a cap on that, begin to feel entitled to things. If there is too much joy in your life, just start taking things for granted and feeling entitled. That will take care of your joy problem immediately. Right? Entitlement... That was a joke, by the way. Entitlement... <laughs> Entitlement speaks in the language of I deserve, right? And I guarantee you, you know exactly zero happy people in your life that are constantly talking about what they deserve, right? See, thankfulness, the language of thankfulness uses the language of I deserve as well, but it's different. It's I deserve nothing. Everything is grace. Look what God has given me. I deserve nothing. Everything is grace. There's a Catholic nun who lived in the 19th century named Teresa of Lisieux, and she said this. She said, everything is grace because everything is God's gift. Everything is grace because everything is God's gift. There's power in seeing that in the details of life. And I don't know what, what I'm about to tell you. I'm not really sure what this says about me other than that I'm a little bit weird, which if you've been around for a while, that's not news. But I find myself drawn to specific thankfulness, drawn to thank God for specific things by the minor inconveniences of life. Like, I'll give you an example. I hate putting away laundry. And, and I don't know anybody that's like a laundry folding enthusiast, but I think I hate putting away laundry more than the average person. In fact, there is currently a pile of clean, unfolded laundry, just mine, not the rest of my family, just mine, sitting right outside my closet. And you guys, how long it's been sitting there does not matter, so stop asking. And, and I just, I need to fold it, and it's just sitting there, and I'm not folding it because I don't want to. But a pile of unfolded laundry is a reason for me to give thanks. Why? It's a sign of God's provision. God has provided me with clothing. Thank you. It doesn't mean I want to fold it. But it's a sign of God's provision, and I can say, I can say thank you. And, and I, I find myself thinking this way in so many other things. It's a, a bag full of groceries on the counter that I need to find, find places for, right? Thank you, God, you've provided me with food. Same with a pile of dishes or, or a, a yard that needs to be mowed or, you know, kids that, that at bedtime come up with every malady under the sun and won't go to sleep, you know? Uh, bills to be paid, all of that stuff. What is it? It's a reminder of God's provision. It's a reminder of, of God's grace and God's blessing in my life. Food, a home, a yard, children, even, I mean, electricity, all of this stuff. The greatest blessings of my life. They're a reminder. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying I enjoy these things. I'm not saying I'm like, I, I love every moment I spend doing the dishes and I'm really sad when it's over. I mean, I'm somewhat normal person just like the rest of you. I don't enjoy these things. But I find that I've just developed this in my mind, that these things are a reminder to me of God's grace. They're a reminder to me of God's blessing 
in my life. And so I can say as I'm hanging my shirts that have been sitting there for far too long or as I'm doing the dishes, I can take time and sincerely say, God, thank you. Your grace is found even in these moments. And I found that to be true. And you might be saying, okay, that's a nice story, but my problems are quite a bit more significant than your little pile of laundry. I found it to be true in the bigger moments as well. In the moments of weariness, in the moments of exhaustion, in the moments where I'm just overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world. And I know you have those moments too. To to learn to be able to pause and just say, God, there is your grace to be found in this moment, and I'm grateful for that, right? You, You have made a way that this hardship will only be temporary. A day is coming when you will wipe away every tear. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, I'm conscious of God's grace in the beautiful moments as well, whether it's in worship or time with my family or I love to be outdoors, time outdoors, or just time, you know, enjoying a a sporting event with my son or with my dad. Like, I don't want to take any of these moments for granted. I just don't want to live my life in that way. So I've just learned to say, God, just pause in these moments. Say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to live with sincere thankfulness. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying, first of all, that there's not a place in the Christian life for sincere grief or lament. Like some of us, we just go through stuff and it is impossible, and I would, I would suggest almost even unhealthy, to try, try to go to a place of thankfulness immediately. We need to allow ourselves to sit in grief and lament and all of those things. And the other thing I'm saying is I'm not saying we need to try to like motivate ourselves to be more thankful by feeling guilty. Right? Like, ah, I I know I should be more thankful. Now I feel guilty about not being thankful. So now I'm going to try really hard to be more thankful, but then I'm not going to be thankful, so I'll be guilty, feel guilty about it. No. (laughs) That's not the point at all. It's not going to work, first of all. And that's not the point at all. But But the point is being able to realize that it is possible with God's help to begin to cultivate a perspective of thankfulness, to look at life through the lens of thankfulness, to ward off. This sense of entitlement to ward off cynicism. And I just want to be be clear also about about one thing. About my own motivation is this is something I've worked on in my own heart to just try to learn to be thankful. My own motivation for trying to be more thankful. It is, you just heard me talk about guilt. It is not out of guilt or obligation. right? It is not because I believe like God is up in heaven keeping track of my thankfulness and there's like a thankfulness quota I need to meet every day and God's like, eh, he's running a little short today. Hope he learned, hope he likes his dinner, you know? Like I don't think, I don't think that's how it works, right? And I don't believe at all that there are like extra sort of material blessings or other things that like God is waiting to give me if I just only express adequate thankfulness for what I have now. I don't don't know how God works. Maybe that's true, but I don't believe that that's true. I believe what I said earlier, that thankfulness is its own reward. That thankfulness, thankfulness is not the way that we get more. Thankfulness is the more. To be able to live with thankfulness is the more. And, and listen, I get, I get that there is a lot in our world and in our hearts that wars against living with this sense of thankfulness and gratitude. I mean, heck, listen, I'm not against advertising. If you're in advertising, I hope you're awesome at it. We see hundreds, if not thousands of ads per day, and not a one of them is telling us, hey, you know, you don't need to change a thing. Maybe you should just be thankful for what you have. 
Right? Nothing, nothing is telling us that. We're being constantly reminded of our inadequacy and you gotta have this and you gotta have that. I admit, it's tough to be thankful. And as we go through the passage here in a minute, we're gonna look at three specific ways that we can kinda lose our sense of thankfulness that, that Israel could have lost their sense of thankfulness. But before we get into the, the text, I have a, I have an important question for you. See, we've called this series the Purpose Reclamation Project. Because we've been studying the story of, of Israel being conquered, leaving their land, losing their sense of purpose, losing their temple, being, being, being forced into exile. And then how now they're returning to the land, they're rebuilding, they're beginning to kind of regain their sense of who they are as God's people, they're reclaiming their purpose. And, and, and all of our different pastors who have taught in this series so far have kind of asked the question in, in different ways, what does it look like for us to begin to reclaim our purpose? Are there, are there desires, are there things that God has placed in our hearts that we have allowed to lie dormant that maybe need to be resurrected and reclaimed? And it's in, in light of that that I want to ask you this question. Is it possible, is it possible that you feel like your life lacks purpose because you've traded thankfulness for entitlement and joy for cynicism? Is it possible that you feel like your life lacks purpose because you've traded thankfulness for entitlement, not a circumstance issue, it's a heart issue, and you've traded joy for for cynicism. And I get, listen, entitlement is a tough one. None of us wake up in the morning thinking, you know, today I'm going to really try to feel more entitled, right? Same with cynicism. Nobody's like working actively on becoming more cynical, but it just sort of happens. So it's, so it's up to us. We have to actively pursue thankfulness and joy, thankfulness and joy. And I just want to ask, is it, is it possible? Cause see, we blame our circumstances for these things. Is it possible that what you and I really need is we don't first need our circumstances to change, as difficult as they may be. But that we need our hearts to change. We need to change out the lens through which we're looking at the world. So that we can look at our current circumstances with thankfulness and joy instead of entitlement and cynicism. Now, in the time we have left, we're going to finally look at the text. Because I've said this was a time of tremendous joy for Israel. Tremendous thankfulness. They're dedicating the temple. They're celebrating the Passover, celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. These big parties. And we're going to see the word joy come up in here a whole, a whole bunch. But I've been saying today that thankfulness is as much about the heart as it is about circumstances. And the passage will help us see some different ways that our hearts can get sidetracked and our hearts can be kind of pulled away from a posture of thankfulness into a less healthy posture. So, so with that, let's start reading Ezra chapter 6, verse 16. It says, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with Joy, there's our word. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So they come together, they offer this sacrifice. 
And in particular, they offer this sacrifice of 12 goats, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a, a powerful kind of symbol of national unity for them. So, so they've offered the sacrifice, they're dedicating the temple. Here's the first way we can lose our sense of thankfulness. It's through comparison. Through comparison. And you might be asking, how the heck did you draw that out of those verses? Well, I'm glad you asked. Back when the original temple was dedicated, which Solomon, who lived long before this, Solomon was the one who built the original temple. It was much bigger and grander than the temple that is built in our passage today. In fact, I mentioned earlier, part of the reason they struggled to get it built is because people didn't have that much enthusiasm for it because it wasn't going to be as wonderful as the original temple. But eventually they got it built. And if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, it talks about the sacrifice that was... And remember, for Israel, these sacrifices are a big deal. 1 Kings chapter 8 talks about the sacrifice that was offered at the dedication of Solomon's temple. It says this. It says that Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Just a bit more than we see in Ezra chapter 6. And this easily could have caused the people to mope and become discouraged. But they didn't let that happen. They presented their offering to the Lord with glad and sincere hearts, and they celebrated the opportunity to do it. Here's the bottom line when it comes to comparison. It is absolutely toxic. I told you how to get rid of your sense of joy. Here's how you get rid of your sense of gratitude for what God is doing in your life. If you want to get rid of your sense of gratitude for what God is doing in your life, just start comparing yourself to other people. Start doing that. Because it is a game you absolutely cannot win. Because there will always be someone who, at least from your perspective seems to be doing better than you, seems to not have the problem you have, seems to have more of this, that, and the other thing. And, and comparison is so wicked because it provokes in us one of two incredibly unhealthy emotions. The first is envy, right? We begin to envy those who, who at least from our perception, seem to have more than us. I want to suggest to you, by the way, those who we envy are just as broken and insecure as we are, right? So we look at others with envy. Or we look, at, uh, we look at some with arrogance and say, well, I'm pretty messed up, but at least I'm better off than they are, right? And both of those are so incredibly toxic, right? Envy and arrogance get us nowhere. And the funny thing about comparison is we would never recommend it to somebody else, right? We would never say, hey, uh, this week when you go to drop your kids off at school, why don't you like compare how nice your car is to the other parents in the drop-off line and, and really let that influence the way you think of your self-worth? Right? Or, or when you drive through your neighborhood, just evaluate who has a better, nicer house than you. Like, and just let that really kind of stew on you, especially if you can think about that late at night when you're trying to sleep. Like, it's really helpful. None of us would ever do that. And yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Comparison keeps us from appreciating the work of God in our own lives. And it keeps us from appreciating the work of God in the lives of others. Right? It's a game we absolutely cannot win. It gets us nowhere. So I want to ask you, where are you prone to comparison? Because I think we all, we all do this. And what would it look like for you to redirect that energy you're spending comparing yourself to others and instead spend it thanking God for the work he's doing in you? And then particularly when you're prone to envy, instead of being envious, thanking God for the work he's doing in somebody else.
I guarantee you, thankfulness, joy, even celebration will become much more possible. Comparison is just ugly, 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 ugly. So let's keep going. Verse 18. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it was written in the book of Moses. In other words, they got the temple appropriately staffed. If you're going to run a temple, you need to have people to work and do the different jobs. That's what they did. They got people ready to go. Verse 19 skips forward three weeks following the dedication of the temple to the celebration of the Passover. And celebrations of the Passover were typically only recorded in the Old Testament if it it corresponded with some big moment in the life of Israel. And, And this certainly qualifies. It says this, on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles returned, or excuse me, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. The whole point of the Passover is for Israel to remember the work of God in the past where hundreds of years prior, he had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them into freedom. It's a reminder to them of God's faithfulness and love. See, another way that you and I can lose our sense of thankfulness is by having a selective memory. By having a selective memory where we remember only the struggle. We remember only the hardships. We maybe get obsessed with our current circumstances and the challenges we see in them. And we forget God's grace. We forget God's faithfulness. For Israel, they easily could have only remembered the struggle. They could have only remembered the exile. They could have only remembered the 900-mile journey. They could have only remembered the challenges they had building the temple. But they didn't. They remembered the Passover. They remembered their God who brought them out of Egypt. Their God who had brought them back into their land. Their God who had been faithful to them in the past and who promised to be faithful In the future, they celebrated this feast to remember his goodness. And in the same way, God has given us a ritual to remember his goodness as well. On the first weekend of every month, when we celebrate communion, Christ's body broken and blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we're we're remembering. We're remembering as we hold the cracker and the juice in our hands. What is that? That is a tangible reminder to us of God's goodness and love. If everything else seems to be falling apart in our lives, the the, the bread and the juice are a tangible reminder of God's love for us. It shows us the extent that God has gone to to redeem us, to draw him back to himself. And then we as people who, who, who know that Christ has been raised for us, it is a reminder of his promise that he will come again. And I love that in some traditions, maybe you've probably heard this, is that, that communion is referred to as the Eucharist. It comes from a Greek word, eucharisteia, which means what? Give thanks. Give thanks. We have this ritual so that we don't have a selective memory. How many of us, let's just be honest, how many of us are allowing the difficulty of the past, the pain of the past, to continue to hurt us today because we're dwelling on the pain and not looking at it through the eyes of God's grace? We're not remembering God's faithfulness to us in the past. We're not remembering God's promises that give us hope in hardship. How many of us is our thankfulness stolen by our own selective memory? How many of us need to remember that God doesn't waste anything? That God doesn't waste anything. That he and his faithfulness, his goodness and love, he will use all things and work all things out for his 
glory so that the pain of the past does not have to be all we remember. We can remember his faithfulness. So we can lose our sense of thankfulness by comparison, by having a selective memory. Then the final way I want to talk about we'll find in verse 21 and 22. It says the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also from everyone, everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now there's a little bit of debate about what verse 21 is referring to, and it talks about you know, those who had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people. But here is the general consensus. What happened when the original exile happened is most of the Jews were taken out of the land, but some, some remained behind. And during the 70 years that they were away, those that had remained behind had begun to assimilate into other cultures, adopting their traditions, adopting their religion, worshiping their gods, and, and on and on we could go. But what happened is when the exiles returned, remembering again, this is a generation or two later, when they returned and the temple was built and there was all this enthusiasm because the people of God had returned to the land that these Jews who had assimilated into other cultures were drawn back together to become a part of the Jewish people again. They remembered their roots, so to speak. Here's the final way we can lose our sense of thankfulness. By forgetting our identity. By forgetting our identity. By forgetting who we are. For for Israel particularly for those that had been left behind, it would have been very easy for them to just kind of forget who they were as the people of God and just continue living amongst these other cultures, especially because we're talking about, again, generations. This is all they ever knew. But they didn't do that. They remembered their roots. They returned with joy to celebrate God for who he was and for what he had done. For you and I, it's really easy to forget who we are. And, and listen, there, there is so much in our world and in our culture that is beautiful and that is wonderful. I just believe there's no greater time in the world to be alive than today. There's so much good. I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm not one of these guys who's like, everything's terrible, it's so horrible. Like, that's just not my perspective at all. I think there's so much beauty and goodness in the world. But it's still really easy to get caught up in the pursuit of power, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of status, the pursuit of influence, to the point where we forget who we are. To the point where we are defined by those things. And if, for example, if your life is defined by the pursuit of power, you will never be able to be thankful, because how much power is enough? There's no such thing. You always need more. And listen, I'm not saying any of those things are bad in and of themselves. I'm saying they can't deliver on their promises. I'm saying they can't deliver on their promises. And same with every other thing, every, you know, even your marriage, your family, all of those things. They cannot give you an identity. If your life is defined by those things, they will not live up to what you need them to do. But... If your primary understanding of yourself is that you are a blood-bought child of God, there will always be reason to be thankful. 
If your primary understanding of yourself is that you are a blood-bought child of God who deserves nothing and has been given everything, there will always be reason to be thankful. This, this passage is an amazing cultural moment in the life of Israel. But in many regards, it is a snapshot of the life you and I have been invited into. A life where we, again, who, have, who deserve nothing, have been given everything. We who are hopelessly broken on our own have been loved perfectly by the only one who can make us whole. That gives us great reason to be a people of celebration, a great reason to be joyful, a great reason to be thankful, to be full of the kind of thankfulness that is necessary for our wholeness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that no matter what we are going through, that we have great reason to be thankful because of who you are and all that you have done for us. Thank you for your grace that meets us in the beautiful moments of life. Thank you for your grace that is with us to sustain us in the challenges. God, I pray that we would learn to be a thankful people. God, by your spirit, would you ward off entitlement. May may we not live even for a moment feeling entitled to your blessings, feeling entitled to the good gifts you give, but instead might we be thankful, thankful, thankful people. And as we live in that way, God, that is of great benefit to us because it will lead to joy and celebration and good things. But we pray that it would be of benefit to the world around us as well. God, we live in an anxious world where there's so much fear and uncertainty, where there is so much entitlement. Might we as your people be a people of thankfulness and might that reflect your goodness and love to a world that desperately needs to see it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great rest of your weekend. Prayer team is up here and would love to pray for you.